If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36 this morning. 1 Samuel, you'll find uh, in the Black Pew Bible at the bottom of page 226. We'll pick up the reading at verse 27. Let me introduce it before we do so. We've uh, asked the question now two weeks ago, and we're going to ask it again this morning. How does God deal with wicked leaders among his people uh, here in the days of Samuel? But also what warnings and hopes can we take away from that for our own day? Two weeks ago, in verses 11 to 26, we saw that the adult sons of Eli, uh, the priests Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked priests. Uh, In order to understand what's about to happen, it's helpful to revisit some of their evil. They cared nothing for God. They neither knew the Lord nor cared that they didn't know the Lord. And these are the priests who are supposed to tell people about the Lord. And they treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt, the sacrifices. They took for themselves the parts that were to be offered to God. More than that, they were bullies. They threatened violence against worshipers who object to their stealing of the offerings. And they are predators. They sleep with the women who are helping to serve at the temple. In all of this, they are undermining their most important duties to the Lord and to his people, which is what? To honor God and to love the people. But what a contradiction in their ministry. Telling people by the actions of the temple that God forgives you and God accepts you while you're making a a mockery of the peace offerings that are meant to assure people that God forgives them and accepts them. Uh, Saying God loves you by their ministry while using and abusing the people they're supposed to assure Uh, Saying God is important while they treat his word, his atoning sacrifices, and his temple ministry so flippantly. What a contradiction. So what does God do when the leaders of his people are wicked? Last time we saw three things. We saw that God quietly raises up new leadership. That's why Samuel is in this story as a young boy, from the very beginning. We saw that God continues to bless his own people. He doesn't utterly forsake his people. He blesses Hannah and her family. And we saw that God has determined to put Eli's sons to death. But that is not all that God has decided to do. And our reading, beginning at verse 27, is a picking up of that story. As God sends a man of God to deliver the message of God, to the priest of God, Eli, about his house. Let me invite you to consider that message from 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 27 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? 
Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then... In distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, your word is a living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the very heart of man, exposing uh, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray that you would have mercy upon us, that you would search us, O God, and know our hearts and see if there's any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Through Jesus we ask it for our own soul's sake and his glory. Amen. Amen. It pays to heed a warning. Argentinian race car driver Juan Manuel Fangio, if that's how you pronounce his name, discovered that after the opening of the First lap of the 1950 uh, Monaco Grand Prix. 
basically, he was approaching a, a dangerous bend in the road for a second time, and he noticed that something was wrong, that ordinarily the faces of the spectators would have been turned in his direction to see him coming, and he would have seen a blur of white as he whipped past them, but instead, their faces were all turned in the direction that he was going, and he realized they're looking at something else, something he can't see. And so he slowed down, he braked, and sure enough, as he came around the bend, there was a massive pileup of other automobiles. Well, this passage is like a massive pileup. We can be like spectators simply watching the spectacle, or we can be like Juan Manuel Fangio and take the warnings to heart. What warning? The warning found in verse 30. Those who despise God shall be lightly esteemed. I especially want you to see three things in this passage. How does God treat those who have great spiritual privileges but go on despising Him? Second, how does God treat His sincere servants who seek to honor Him? And third, how does God's mercy triumph in the end? For that is our hope. Let me invite you to consider those three things. In the first place, how does God treat those who have great spiritual privileges but go on despising him? The end of verse 30, the Lord says, Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That's the principle upon which the whole passage is an illustration in the family and household and among the descendants of Eli. Watch the bodies pile up. Let's walk through the passage once over just to see this point illustrated. There's Eli, of course. His family privileges are uh, rehearsed in verses 27 to 28. Thus says the Lord, verse 27, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? The answer, of course, is yes, God did, because Eli is the descendant of who? Aaron, and God revealed himself to Aaron while Israel was still in Egypt. He didn't have to do that. It was his gracious revelation. And then God chose Aaron and his descendants to be the priests, to be the priestly family in the house of Israel. Verse 28, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up on my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Answer, yes, I did that too. And and notice what that priesthood consisted of in three main tasks. First, go up to my altar. In other words, bring the sacrifices up to the altar for the atonement of the sins of the people. That was the job of the priest. Second, burn incense. This is the outward visible sign of the, of the, of the spiritual reality of intercessory prayer. The prayers going up to God. And thirdly, wear an ephod before me. That was a ceremonial garment or vestment which the high priest wore on which the 12 stones of Israel were placed so that the high priest represented, in wearing that, represented all of Israel by name before the Lord. 
This is what a priest did. Atoning sacrifices, ministry of intercessory prayer, covenantally representing the people of God before the Lord. And God had provided for Aaron's family, including Eli, through that work. The privilege of the priesthood and the privilege of provision. Notice end of verse 28. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. I I let you eat from the table. These people brought their food and you got to eat from it. It was their way of providing. It was uh, part of the package. But do you see God's point? What great privileges I have given to you. What gifts I have given to you. And so you have this rehearsal of grace before you get the punch in the face. And that punch is very direct. Verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Do you see God's point? I mean, the movie line steals the thunder, but it's true. What, with great privilege comes what? Great responsibility. The greater the privileges, the higher the blessings, the more profound and offensive the sin. Here's a point to be made. Not all sins are equal. Some sins are worse than others. Sins against light Sins against knowledge, sins against privileges, sins against grace. This is the point of piling up all this stuff God did for him is to point out the, the, the utter ingratitude and the severity of it. And hence the severity of the judgment that comes. Now that may seem strange to hear to our ears because we're in our generation, we're of the generation that says all sins are equal. Uh, all sins are really bad uh, or you know somewhat bad but anyway they're all they're all the same but that isn't true and I think a moment's reflection would show you that probably you don't really believe that you parents anyway know that your unjust anger against your three-year-old is worse than their unjust anger against you there's an obligation with parenthood and adulthood and maturity that you don't expect from a three-year-old without excusing the three-year-old. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. It's uh, worse for a teacher of God's word to sin than it is for a disciple to sin that same sin. At least James chapter 3 verse 1 warns us, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Listen, I'm I'm not denying that every sin is worthy of condemnation. Of course it is. It's it's an offense against a, a perfectly, infinitely holy God. But not all sins are equally bad. It's, it's one thing for us to struggle, for instance, with lust. For any of us to struggle with lust. It's another thing, quite another thing, for the minister to commit adultery with the temple servants. It's one thing for you to envy your neighbor's dinner, and it's quite another for the minister to steal from you at the church potluck, carrying around the three-pronged fork that Hoffney and Phineas did, threatening you with violence if you don't give them the fried chicken. I like fried chicken. So it was for Eli's house. What did Eli do then? What did he do? He honored his sons above the Lord. Verse 29. This is God's accusation. You honor your sons 
above me. In other words, he didn't restrain them. And God was displeased by that. God says, you've placed your affection for your sons above the honor of your Lord. And it was a failure then of what? Not, I think, just parental discipline, but here of church discipline. He hadn't done what he should have done professionally. Um, Sometimes, as uh, Ralph Davis says, we, we moralize this passage and we say, well, you know, Eli, you know, obviously he didn't discipline his boys when they were little. So you see what finally caught up to him. And this is what happens. But the text doesn't say that Eli failed to discipline his kids when they were children. It just doesn't say. It does say in this specific instance, he let his affection for them or his softness of heart towards them come before the honor of the Lord. What should he have done? Look, Eli's not responsible for his son's immoral living. These are, after all, adult men. You'll find later that they're married men. Eli's a very old man. These are adult men serving in the temple. He didn't lead them into this sin, not in that way. They are priests doing what they're doing, and Eli is who? He is the judge of Israel in that day. He should have excluded his sons from the priest's office. They should have been deposed from the ministry. But he let them go on, abusing the worship of God. In other words, he wasn't responsible for everything they did, but he had a duty to see that they didn't keep on doing it while remaining in the priesthood. And there's a point there, I think, to be made. May we not be like that in the church of the Lord Jesus. Um, We are uh, likewise accountable to one another in the church, and there needs to be a kind of church discipline within the church, not in a nasty way, not in a mean-spirited or unkind or unloving or quick-tempered kind of way, but in love for the honor of God and the well-being of the people of God. Sometimes people need to be rebuked and rebuked sharply. And sometimes even ministers need to be taken out of gospel ministry. We should not let our affection for those we love come before the supreme honor of God. So Eli fails in his responsibility. What does God do in this passage? God does what Eli failed to do. Verse 31, and notice the list of things he says is coming. Verse 31 Eli's strength is going to be cut off. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength. That's a reference to his two sons, the sons being the strength of the father, who will be put to death, and we'll read about that in chapter 4. Then you find there's a reference to the coming massacre of all the priests descended from Eli. Verse 31, I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. End of verse 32, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. End of verse 33, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And when does that happen? It comes in 1 Samuel chapter 22. In the days of Saul and David, when Saul commanded Doeg the Edomite to turn and kill all the priests. If you were to listen in, sometimes flip over there, chapter 22, verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 
and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. But there's going to be one survivor in Eli's family. Verse 33, back in our text, the only one of you, it says, whom I shall not cut off from my altar, shall be spared to weep his eyes out and grieve his heart. And the only priest that escaped the Doeg massacre is Abiathar. Abiathar, who becomes David's priest and serves David faithfully until near David's death, but then betrays David and supports the usurpation of David's son, Abonijah, over the true heir, King Solomon. My kids and I were reading this in family devotions a few weeks ago, and I had completely forgotten why it was that this happens. But here it is in Samuel, why it happens that Abiathar, then this last remaining priest, is there, but then is eventually expelled because he sided with not King Solomon. And so 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27 says, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that had been spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Directly tells you why. And so Abiathar then, the last remaining priest, is replaced by Zadok, a different line of descendants from Aaron, from a different family line of men out of Aaron. And so Eli's descendant Abiathar is this one spoken of at the end of verse 36 who is forced during, to be sidelined during the glory days of Solomon's reign and Solomon's temple, the most glorious temple that Israel ever had, Until they got Jesus himself as the true temple of God. And he was forced to survive on the charity and generosity of the priests who got to serve because he had been removed. And so then notice verse 34 in the passage. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and it shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. In other words, Eli, you're not going to see all of this happen for yourself. Some of it's coming long after you're gone. But the sign to you that this is going to happen is your two sons will die on the same day. That's God's verdict. That's God's intervention in the face of the failures of his own high priest. That's God's judgment on Hophni and Phinehas and the family and the line of priests flowing from Eli. And you might ask, is it unfair to the descendants of these men that they should get removed from the office? The office is a gift. It's not had uh, perpetually if you despise the Lord. God does them no wrong in taking back and giving to a different line of Aaron the priesthood. All of this happens in accordance with the principle stated in verse 30. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Despise me, and you will be despised. Hate me, God says, and you will be cut off from me. And what God says he will do, he will do. And he does. And he doesn't do it impatiently. He warns them all ahead of time. He suffers long with them before he removes them. There are surely opportunities here for repentance. I don't say restoration to office, but repentance and reconciliation between themselves and God. 
as time marches on. They all know what's coming. And so it's a mercy that they're warned. And I want to pause and say this as well. Perhaps it is that we have suffered terrible wrongs at the hands of fellow Christians. Or by the church of the Lord Jesus. Or from ministers or or, or preachers of the gospel. And sometimes we want immediate retribution for those things. You can imagine the, the families of these women assaulted by Eli's sons while they're serving in the temple. You can imagine some of them wanted justice. They wanted revenge. They wanted retribution. And immediate. You can imagine the heads of households with all their kids gathered to feed them the meal. And these guys are stealing their food. You can imagine they might have wanted immediate retribution, immediate correction, immediate change of heart, immediate take them out of the ministry. And God says, I have a plan. My plan will include permitting sinners to go on sinning. And of course, if he doesn't permit sinners to go on sinning, then nobody gets to keep going on because we're all sinners. But in his plan... He will warn them and he will correct them. But if they are apostate, he will destine them to judgment. That may not get you if you have suffered at the hands of Christian ministry. That may not get you heaven on earth. It may not get you utopia in the church. But it does give you hope for the future. God will deal with the wicked. God rules his people. But don't just stare at this priestly demise that's coming in that day. What about your own heart? The good news of the gospel is Jesus Christ has died for his enemies. Has the sight of Christ crucified for your sins softened your heart towards him? Be warned if it hasn't. Jesus said in John 15, 23, whoever hates me, hates my father also. In other words, you can't despise Jesus and lay claim to God's favor in some other way. How will we escape then if we neglect such a great salvation, such a great savior who laid down his life for his enemies? Don't neglect that salvation. Embrace that savior. But to despise him will mean you're lightly, dis- lightly esteemed. Now, on the positive side of that expression of verse 30, there's this, and much more briefly, how does God treat his sincere servants who seek to honor him? Notice, for those who honor me, verse 30, I will honor. Take, uh, take Joseph as an example. God is passionate about his own honor. He will uphold his honor and his children who honor him he will honor, and Joseph is a great example. And you say to me, Joseph, I mean, Joseph, I, you know, he honored God and he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And then I say to you, but yes, but, but, but into the house of the captain of Pharaoh's guard, there are worse places to be in Egypt. But then you say to me, yes, but he honored God and fled from Potiphar's wicked wife, and he ended up in prison. And I say, but eventually he ended up in Pharaoh's palace at the right hand. And you say to me, but he ended up in a grave buried in a tomb in Egypt. And I say to you, but he is in the paradise of God, beholding the face of his Savior. 
God honors those who honor him, not always immediately, but always eventually. A famous example of the principle that God honors those who honor him is that of Eric Little. Some of you know the story of the Scottish Olympian who won the gold medal in the Paris Olympics in 1924. He was born and raised in China, the son of Presbyterian missionaries. He returned to Scotland in his youth. He emerged as one of the best runners Scotland ever had at a time when Britain's national identity uh, uh, craved honor and Olympic glory. He was favored to win the 100 meters, but a problem came up. The finals of that event was, going to, was scheduled to be on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and he was convinced as a Christian, persuaded by God's word, that because running was his work, it was his job, that he was to rest from his labor on Sunday and worship the Lord on Sunday, so he humbly refused to participate in the 100 meters. And the British people were outraged by this. Pressure was brought to bear on him. Newspapers denounced him as a traitor to Britain. Many Christian friends sought to persuade him that he was being too obstinate. And the Prince of Wales called him to put the heat on him, saying, doesn't your duty to country require you to set your scruples aside? But he held firm. He was determined to honor the Lord above himself, honor and above honoring his nation in the way that his conscience was convinced. And, and a compromise was then reached. Perhaps you know the story that he would bypass the 100 meters and enter the 400 meters. Instead, it was one of the very few races that didn't have any heats on Sunday. The problem was that he had not trained for that event. And anybody who's a runner, and I used to be, can tell you that a, that a 100 meter sprint is a very different thing than a 400 meter run. Especially at at Olympic levels. But he was going to run it for his last chance to win Olympic gold for his country. And that morning as he prepared, a member of the British training staff handed him a note. And Little said, well, I don't have time to read it now. When I get down on the track, I'll read it then. And he did. And on it were written these words, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. He who honors me, I will honor with that piece of paper balled up in his hand, he ran the race, not only winning the gold medal, but setting an Olympic record and a world record that stood for at least a decade. What's interesting is that you can imagine British uh, opinion flipped on a dime, and he was praised uh, tremendously. The, the one they despised was now their hero. But instead of cashing in on his fame, he kept his commitment to go back to China as a missionary. And when he was departing Scotland to do so, the the crowd that showed up to see him off was so large that a thousand people had to be turned away. Twenty years later, he was still honoring the Lord in China in service. But there at the end of World War II, imprisoned in a Japanese internment camp where he died. At the end of the movie that honors his life, Chariots of Fire... The screen bore these words, Eric Little, missionary, died in occupied China at the end of World War II. All of Scotland mourned. He had honored God behind the scenes and on the international scene. And God honored him before the world and we believe before the angels. Says Charles Spurgeon, you will find almost everywhere that when a man gives everything up for God, It does not look so much for the advancement of his own family as for the good of God's family as a whole. 
The Lord says to him very much what Queen Elizabeth said to one of the London merchants of her day. I want you to go to Hamburg to attend to some business of mine, said the queen. But your majesty, said the merchant, my own business will suffer in my absence. No, said the queen, it will not. For if you attend to my business, I will attend to yours. And the Lord says to us, says Spurgeon, if we honor him, he will honor us. And even in this present life, as Jesus says, he will give us a hundredfold of everything that we give up for him. And in the world to come, life everlasting. Why? Because he honors those who honor him. His sincere children who seek to honor him, he honors. Now the last question I want us to ask is... In, Found in verse 35. How does God's mercy triumph in the end? To Eli, he says, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Do you see what he's saying? In the midst of this massive pileup of people, there's hope. And the hope is God himself will raise up a faithful priest. And at the end of the day, whether Eli and his sons would honor him, the Lord would have a priest who would honor him. He would raise him up. And that promise looks forward, we might say, to Samuel growing up, who becomes a prophet and is being trained as a priest. But beyond him, certainly, to Zadok, that priest we spoke of, who took the place of Abiathar, who was a believing and faithful priest, to a certain extent as any human could be. But you know that this promise has its ultimate fulfillment beyond them to the Lord Jesus himself. For you may remember that at the end of the Old Testament, in the very last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, in chapter 1 of that book, God's indictment of the ministry and the priests is what? They despise me. They despise my name. They despise my offerings. But God remains committed to his own honor. Malachi chapter 1 verse 14. I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It will be. What will he do for his honor? Malachi chapter 3. He will, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And what will he do? Malachi 3.3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is Jesus, our great high priest, who suddenly came to the Lord's temple to do the work of a faithful great high priest making the true and perfect sacrifice for sins. Always living to intercede for us. Functioning as our representative before God to bring us to God. Our names are inscribed on the palms of his hands. And so it is that our Jesus Christ is the great high priest And so it is that there is mercy for sinners. And there is mercy for ministers. And there is mercy for all who will trust in him for salvation. He will never turn you away. May God give us a heart to fear to despise him. And may God give us a heart to honor him. Because he gave his beloved son that we might have life in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son whom you did not spare, that he died the just for the unjust 
to bring us to you. You know all the depravity of our hearts, the wickedness of our thoughts, the idolatry, the other loves, the failures of our love. None of us honors you the way that you deserve. Thank you that Jesus does and did for us and that he spares us and changes us and makes us bound for glory. Grant our souls to rest in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.